We do thank you if you have uh, served. We thank you for your service and uh, giving up your life for our freedoms. I think that um, when we look at where we are as a nation and a people, I hope that this um, sermon will speak to us as I've... As we've been going through the minor prophets, um, they certainly have been speaking to me. Um, The different things that we have walked through, uh, even recently in our nation, the Lord seems to be reminding us um, he is the one that is in control. He has a plan, just as he did in the days of Israel, in the days of Joel, For our nation, for our people, for his people, his church. And two weeks ago, we began our um, jaunt through the minor prophets. And we talked about the steadfast love of Hosea. And we pivot from the steadfast love of the Lord and his covenantal love of Hosea to the book of Joel which speaks of the judgment and the wrath of God. Isn't that an interesting transition, how the writers put the book of Hosea first in the minor prophets? And remember, they're minor not because their message is minor, but because they're shorter in nature. But after the book of Hosea comes the book of Joel, the judgment and the wrath of God. A lot of things have happened since we last met on Sunday in our world and certainly we are praying for our nation right now. A lot of people are hurting today and we as the church, the people of God, cry out to the only one who can bring about restoration and healing in our nation. You see, Israel at this time when the prophet Joel writes the book of Joel found themselves looking for healing and restoration. One of the earliest recorded prophets was Joel. He was probably a student of Elijah or Elisha. You guys know them well. And at the time, Judah was undergoing a chaos, a disorder because of a lack of good leadership. They suffered a national plague in which locusts had eaten all the vegetation in the nation. They were going through hunger. They had some civil unrest, maybe some economic problems associated with it. And Joel says, there is only one problem. It's the old adage, where does it hurt? The young person points to his leg and says, it hurts here. And then he points to his shoulder and he says, it hurts here. And then finally he points to his nose and says, it hurts here. And the doctor looks over at the young person and says, son, there's only one thing wrong. You have a dislocated finger Thank you for the courtesy laugh. I appreciate that. (laughs) Joel, the prophet, will describe the problem. 
as the devastating power of sin over God's people. And he will do that through an illustration. And the illustration is a plague of locusts. Like a swarm of locusts leaves a place with devastation and desolation, so does, in fact, sin leaves nothing left in one's life. Our guys have some pictures of devastating locust plagues. This was actually more recent than the one I'm going to talk about, but a recent example of a locust devastation was in 1915 in Palestine in which swarms of locusts appeared in the sky, the clouds of locusts so thick that it obscured the sun. Immediately, these locusts began to dig holes in the soil about four inches deep and a half inch wide, depositing more than a 100 eggs in each of these holes. These holes were literally everywhere. About 70,000 eggs would be concentrated in a single square yard of soil. And these patches covered the ground for miles and miles. Within a few weeks, these young locusts hatched resembling large ants. And they hadn't formed wings yet, so they hopped along the ground like fleas covering about 400 to 600 feet a day, devouring any and all vegetation in their path. They would grow to develop the ability to jump in which they would reach trees and vines a few weeks later, developing wings to swarm over areas in which they had devoured only to completely destroy all living things, plants, flowers, trees, Gone. And these locusts would even eat the bark off the trees, com- leaving in complete devastation. If you saw this back in 1915, it looked like a nuclear holocaust. These pictures are from East Africa more recently. And if there was anything left, they would swarm into homes eating food, clothing, fabric, and wood. Joel describes something like this in the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 1 verse 4, he says this, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And representing what has happened to Israel, not only in a literal plague of locusts, but also relating it to the devastating effect of sin in the life of God's people. The locusts, they leave nothing. And Joel says, this is the problem. The illustration in Joel is powerful. Sin leaves nothing behind completely and utterly destroying one's life. God yet wants to bring life and obedience to God's commands brings life and fruit and joy and fulfillment. And he calls for his people in the book of Joel to return to the Lord. In chapter two, verse 12, it's not our text this morning, 
but it comes of importance to us when we get to our text because it's a call, it's a cry from the prophet Joel to the people of God to return to the Lord. Let me read it for you. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So one of the questions that you may have when you read this book is why does God send judgment upon his own people? Why would he send a locust plague and later, why would he send Babylon? Why would he send Assyria to the north, Babylon to the south? Judgment upon his people. Well, let's find out here in the pages of Joel as we see what happens when God's people return to the Lord. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read our passage of scripture this morning. In verse, starting in verse 25 of chapter 2. This is what the Lord says he will do. When God's people return to the Lord. Chapter 2 verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Amen. The word of the prophet Joel, you can be seated. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that your word would speak to us right now. We know that many, many are struggling with their suffering and their pain. And Father, your promises ring true to us today. Help us to see how you are working and how you are moving. And help us to respond in worship to this great God who loves, who saves, and who restores. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. In the 1920s and early 30s, a young man by the name of Louis Zamperini, if, if you've seen the movie Unbroken, it recounts his life. He realized at a young age that he had a gift, and the gift was running. He even competed in the 1936 Berlin Olympics as a teenager. Lou would set aside his running career as he would join the Army Air Corps during World War II. And as he was on his mission, his plane went down deep in the Pacific Ocean. And as they floated, him and his crewmen floated in the ocean, fending off sharks and starvation, asking the Lord to bring about rain so that they could drink some water a Japanese fighter plane came and started shooting holes in their raft. For the next few days, not knowing whether he would survive or not, he saw land, and as he was swimming towards the land, he was intercepted by a Japanese ship. And for the next two and a quarter years, Louis would become a prisoner of war in Japan. The conditions of a prisoner of war were, as you could imagine, unspeakable. There was a prison guard in that prison that was nicknamed the Bird. He was well known for how he treated the prisoners. Louis was singled out because he was a former Olympian and the Bird treated him horrendously. After the war ended... Louis came back to the States, having been through a lot. The bird still haunted Louis well after the war. Even after marrying a beautiful Christian young lady named Cynthia, he could not blot out the images of what happened during his time in Japan. He tried running, getting back into running, but he The injuries that he sustained as a POW were too much for him to overcome. And as a result, he turned to despair and began heavily drinking. He had flashbacks and became a very angry man. He was bitter with his life. It had overtaken him as he wanted to go back to Japan, find the bird And deal with him in his own way. Louis had turned away from God. Wanting nothing to do with God. A God who would subject him through so much pain. And as a a result of his anger, his bitterness, his actions. It was no longer safe for his wife and his child to live with him. But in the fall of 1949, Cynthia made a last effort to save her husband. She asked Louis to come to a tent meeting in Los Angeles where a young preacher named Billy Graham was preaching. For two nights, Louis sat in the tent feeling guilty and angry as Graham spoke of sin and its consequences to sin. God bringing miracles to people who are stricken. On the second night, Graham asked people to step forward to declare their faith. And Louis stood up and he stormed towards the exit. But at the aisle, he stopped short. 
Suddenly, he was in a flashback, adrift on the raft at sea. It hadn't rained for days, and he was dying of thirst. In anguish, he whispered a prayer, Lord, if you will save me, I will serve you forever. And over that raft, rain began falling. And standing in Graham's tent, lost in his flashback, Louis felt the rain on his face once more. At that moment, Louis began to see his whole ordeal differently. When he'd been trapped in the wreckage of his plane, somehow he'd been freed. When the Japanese bomber had shot the raft full of holes, somehow none of the men had been hit. When the bird had driven him from the breaking point and he'd prayed for help, somehow he'd find the strength to keep breathing. And that day on the raft, when he had prayed for rain, rain had come. Louis' conviction that he was forsaken by God was gone and replaced by a belief that divine love had been all around him, even in the darkest of moments. That night in Graham's tent, the bitterness and the pain that had haunted him for so many years vanished. A year later, Louis went back to Japan, this time a joyful man. His marriage had been restored, his nightmares and flashbacks gone, his alcoholism overcome, And he went to a Tokyo prison where war criminals were serving their sentences. He hoped to find the bird. To know for sure if peace that he'd found was resilient. He did not find the bird. But what he did find in that time was a complete and other forgiveness. The peace of God. Life had returned to his desolate soul. God had restored to him the years that the locusts had eaten. He had found true repentance and he praised the name of his God, understanding God had not left him and that God had provided for him even in the midst of a lost and chaotic world. You see, God is the rebuilder. He is the restorer. He is the rewarder. You see, God took on flesh and he made his dwelling among men to give up his life so that you could be restored in right relationship with your God. And the book of Joel, the prophet of Joel, calls his people to return to the Lord. Look at verse 25 with me. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. This is our first point this morning, and it's thus. Return to the Lord to be restored. Return to the Lord to the Lord to be restored. God's promise is to restore to Israel the years the locusts have eaten, 
And when you look at this, we understand God's restorative power because he is the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he can and will restore your life. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how many things have happened in your life, no matter how it looks so desolate and devastated, God can and will restore your life. But at the end of this verse, I want to notice something. He says, my great army which I sent among you. When you look at that, you think to yourself, what, did I just read that? God is sending the locusts. It's his army. Oh no, God is the one sending the locusts. I'm sure when I read this passage, there are some out, out there in our congregation that think to themselves, Oh no, what is he going to say? I mean, it, I mean, does he have anything to say here? <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how do you justify a gracious and loving God with one who sends locusts? Locust plagues devastating his own people. Well, thanks for asking, right? You see, usually the wrath of God and sometimes the wrath of God The judgment of God is an extension of our own natural consequences of sin. God, by sending the plague, is just affirming and extending what Israel has already chosen for themselves. The devastating power of sin... And God sends this judgment, the swarm of locusts, in hopes to wake them up to return to the Lord. Wake them up to the reality of their sin, the devastating consequences of their sin. For instance, Genesis 3, God cast Adam and Eve out of his presence in the Garden of Eden. Quite a large Judgment, right? Quite a large punishment. Yet Adam and Eve were already hiding from God in the garden as a result of their sin. They had already chosen to separate themselves from the presence of God by choosing to go against his word. Pharaoh is another example. Pharaoh's judgment from the Lord was that the Lord hardened his heart. Yet Pharaoh had already hardened his heart many times to the Lord and God gives him what he wants. Theologians call this the passive and active wrath of God. The passive is God allowing us to suffer the natural consequences of sin, whereas the active wrath of God is is God bringing a lightning bolt of his judgment All of it, when you think about hell, when you think about the term of hell, it describes this type of continuation of what you have already chosen for yourself. The devastating power of sin chosen in continuation for all eternity. 
And ultimately, it is not God who destroys. It is sin who, that which destroys. And when we understand this correctly, we see God's judgment is often God's grace in hoping and praying that his creation, that his people who are to bear his image return to him. He's trying to awaken us to the reality of our sin. Because oftentimes when we're living in sin, we live in this meta world. Some of you may not know what that is, but 3D fake world. Think of a video game world. And we don't even know that we are in that world. And when we see the locust coming our way, we tend to wake up to the reality of sin. You say, God's judgment? We're talking about Hosea last week. God says, go again is extravagant love and grace. How do we explain the God who sends judgment and the God of grace and mercy? Well, sometimes his judgment is what sin looks like unchecked. Any experience of the painful consequences of our sin before it's too late is God's mercy and his love trying to wake you up before it is too late. He's not trying to pay you back, but bring you back into God's favor, his mercy, his grace. His love. Maybe, maybe he's trying to wake you up from your sin right now. Your, your life is be, being devoured by locusts. And maybe, maybe it never seems like you can get ahead. Every time you try to take a, take a step forward in your marriage, you take two steps back. Your finances just seem to be able, just to be able to get above water and then all of a sudden you're underwater again and you seem to be coming back to the Lord time and time again. You come back to church almost like a balloon that you have to hit, hit, be hit back up just to stay up, just to stay alive. And you're saying, my life is, is, is a lot like my house. Just slap a coat of moral paint to f- just fix the leak on the roof. That's all I need, Lord. Just try and fix it. And the problem is, the Lord wants to make you a new creation. You see, he begins working inside of your heart and your life in every single area. He's tearing out walls. He's ripping up carpet. And man, that hurts. And the Lord's like, I'm not turning a new leaf. I'm making a new creation in you. Sometimes he does that through his judgment. And you know you're moving in the right direction 
when your heart is truly broken over your sin. You're truly repentant. Joel 2.12 again, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. God doesn't want just a portion of your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend, that word is break, and break your hearts and not your garments. He doesn't want an outward representation of your repentance. He wants the whole thing. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You're so torn up, you actually mean it. Repentance then will bring about action in your life. You see, the promise is to restore. And why? Because he's the one who sent the locust to begin with. Of course he wants to restore your life. He sent you the locust to bring you back to him. Return to the Lord of Israel. Return to the Lord, O church. Return. And his promise is, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. I love how Joel explains God sending the locust as God dealing wondrously with his people. And my people shall never again be put to shame You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Sin brings about great shame in the lives of people. We may not understand this as as much as Asian cultures around the world have a honor-shame culture in which you disrespect your parents or if you... If you turn out, um, your sin affects your family. And a lot of people want to not live in sin, not only for themselves, but also their family. This honor and shame culture. God says, you will never again have shame when you return to me. When you worship me, you will be satisfied. This is point number two this morning. Be satisfied in God alone. You see, when you think of sin, you think of this satisfaction that you need outside of God's design. You feel that you are deserving or in need of this type of satisfaction in your life. And yet God says what you need is me. Me alone. And I will give you the blessings that you need. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 31. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles think after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What Israel needed was the Lord. And Joel makes that abundantly clear. What our nation needs today is the Lord. What you need today is the Lord himself. Sometimes God will bless you with more stuff. Sometimes he'll give you greater contentment in the stuff that you already have. Sometimes God will bless you by taking away the pain. Sometimes he'll give you joy and peace within the pain. Sometimes he'll bless you by fixing your marriage. And sometimes he'll give you peace and that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a painful marriage. But one thing is for sure, contentment is a sign of a person who places the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all things. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. That person who is content with what God has given to them in the midst of their circumstances and in the midst in their circumstance in, in the midst of all that's going on, they have experienced the highs and the lows of this life. And in the midst of both, they praise God Himself and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with. Uh, A lot of people in our world, probably a lot of people in this room today, I can include myself, spend most of their life trying new strategies on how to get happy, right? But it always feels like a skin-deep pseudo-happiness. Let me tell you, if you have to spend money every day to get happy, it means that you're really not happy, okay? If you are constantly having to escape from real life to be happy, maybe you shop to be happy or TV or porn or a hobby or drinking or substance abuse to be happy, that means that something is rotten on the inside. And God is going to call you back to himself. And how does he do this? He does it through his word, through dreams, through visions, through suffering, and sometimes through locusts. But guess what? God has more locusts than you do have fixes for all your problems. So there's only really one solution. Return to the Lord. Be satisfied in God himself.
Look at verse 28 with me. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For, the Mount, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is our last point this morning. It's thus. God's spirit will be poured out upon his people. God will restore. We will be completely satisfied in him. And he will pour out his spirit, which is the opposite of pouring out judgment and locust plagues upon the flesh of his people. You see, there, throughout the book of Joel, there, there is a phrase, the day of the Lord. You see it there in verse 31, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is in reference to the coming judgment. Revelation picks upon this day as the coming judgment day of the Lord in which he will vindicate his holiness. He will pour out his wrath upon sin and sinners. You see this end times thought process here, the picture of the blood moon, the sun darkened. And yet there's also the picture of the Spirit poured out this picture of people who call upon the name of the Lord and this picture of people being saved you see the prophet is not only talking to us about the end time when the judgment and the wrath of God will come upon his creation he's also talking about the wrath of God poured out upon the Son of God on the cross. You see, Peter declares in Pentecost in Acts 2 that this verse, this prophecy in Joel is fulfilled. In Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, God pouring out the blessing of his spirit after the destruction of the plague of locusts. Except this time the destroying plague of locusts isn't upon God's people. The hordes of locusts were poured out on the flesh of Christ upon the cross. The wrath of God poured out upon the innocent, righteous one so that you can return to the Lord and that he could pour out his spirit upon his people. 
You see, God's wrath was poured out that his spirit could come and dwell in his church, the people of God. And look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm. Somehow, in some way, the Christian world has taken salvation and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved to mean that they are saved from Satan, from hell. Who are you saved from? You are saved from the wrath of God who pours out his wrath as the just judge for sin. God has provided in his grace and mercy a way of salvation for those who call out to him. You see, we are deserving of the locusts. We are deserving of the judgment of God. We are deserving of complete and utter devastation. And yet God in his faithfulness and his love has provided a way of salvation for you. Let me read you what Paul writes in reference to this verse. Because Romans 10, 9, if If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where did Paul get that? He got it right here. From Joel. God is the same God. God of the Old Testament, the same God of Israel, and he wants to do the exact same thing in your life. He does it through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Return to the Lord, church, in repentance and fasting. Rend your hearts to God because he is the one. We have a problem. It is a sin problem. And the only fix is the Lord to come and dwell in your spirit, in your heart, in your body as the Holy Spirit comes and transforms your life. And not just some of your life, it's every single aspect of your life. I told someone this week, I'm I'm done playing games. I really am. I don't want to play games with God. I want him to transform every single area of my life. And if that means suffering, then that means suffering. 
but I desire a transformed life to glorify him with it. Return to the Lord, bringing restoration, restoring the years the locusts have eaten. Church, let's be people who preach the God of restoration and are people who are transformed into his likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have provided a way of escape, a way of salvation for us. We no longer need to be shamed of the life that we've lived, where we are, that we have been stripped naked by the judgment and the wrath of God. But Father, you clothe us in righteousness. You give us the strength that we need, the peace that we need to live for you, for your glory, as we bear your image to a lost and dying world. Help us to not exclude ourselves from people who have been devastated by the effects of sin, even within our own body and in our own church. But help us to see the devastating effects of sin in our own life as your grace, your mercy, your love, helping us to wake us up to the reality of where we are headed Lord, give us the strength that we need to be a people who weep, who our hearts are broken over our sin so much so that we do repent and turn from our sin. Help us to not play games. Rend our hearts, not our clothing. Help us to return to the Lord. Help us to begin today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.